Well, good morning to those here, to those in other parts of the building, watching in overflow rooms, to those watching at home. We've had a, uh, a lot going on in the service today, and actually there's more to come after the sermon, but that's in part because of what we talked about last week, that we here at North Sub, we, we are a real family, and so we happily take time for some family business that from a worldly perspective might seem a bit foolish, but uh, when a member of the family gets her first Bible in kindergarten, when a member of the family graduates from a degree program, uh, we take time for that around the family table, don't we? Um, those seemingly little things are the things that we aren't ashamed to celebrate. So thanks for leaning into those celebrations with us. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. <clears throat> when we were in middle school, my sister and I were ball boy and ball girl for a Division I college basketball team. Uh, here was the job. Before the game and at halftime, we would make sure the players had what they needed for warm-ups. During the game, if a ball went out of bounds, we'd chase it down. If there was a wet spot under the basket from sweat, uh, we'd run out with a towel, wipe it up so the players wouldn't slip. Uh, it's pretty fun. We got the front row seat to watch a couple of future NBA players play uh, during that time. But I wasn't really trained for that job. I just kind of got thrown into it. Our dad worked at the university. So I kind of just did what many 13-year-old boys would probably do. I sometimes made it about me. So I tried my best to get in the action when I could. Uh, maybe a little overzealous with running on the court to wipe up a sweat spot that maybe didn't really need to be wiped up. Uh, at halftime, when the teams went in the locker room, I'd look around, take a ball, shoot around a little bit. Uh, you know, maybe right before the balls had to be put up for the second half to start, to fire up a half-court shot, hoping the crowd might react. Uh, <clears throat> and I guess that at some point I started taking it a little too far. In hindsight, because I remember our supervisor gathering us ball boys and ball girls together and saying, hey, this isn't actually about you. Uh, he explained, believe it or not, people aren't paying for tickets because they want to see teenagers shoot around. Uh, it's detracting from the main event, he said. Now, as foolish as that ball boy is, who thinks the point of a college basketball game is the half-court shot that he takes at halftime, is it possible that we sometimes act like that ball boy in our own roles in God's kingdom? Do we ever become so preoccupied with our own ministries, our own ministry tasks, that our little contributions to the story start to define our self-understanding? Do we place so much value on our ministry success that we start thinking that God's work somehow rises or falls based on what we do? Let's turn together to Luke chapter 10, if you haven't already. As you're turning there, let me remind us that we're in the last few weeks of a sermon series we've entitled Jesus versus Idols, in which we are exploring occasions in the Gospels in which Jesus confronted objects of worship in people's lives. By idols, we don't necessarily mean golden statues. Biblically speaking, here's what idolatry is, and we've looked at these definitions each week. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the Creator. An idol is something in creation, Paul Tripp says, that claims the place in my heart that only God should have. 
And Tim Keller says, an idol is anything in your life that's so central to your life that you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. Like if I have that, then my life has value. Then my life has meaning. If I would lose that, I don't know how I would live. In past weeks, we've looked at the idols of wealth, position or rank, happiness, family. Today, the idol of ministry. And when I say ministry, some of you probably picture vocationally religious people, pastors or priests. Uh, but if you've been around North Sub very long, you hopefully know that's not just, I don't just mean that. Here in Norsa, we've gone to the scriptures and concluded, and we say this pretty frequently, we are all in ministry, actually. And we've taken that seriously here. It's an incredible strength of this particular church family that almost every one of our members is engaged in using their gifts in ministry in some way. So when I use the word ministry today, uh, I'm talking about when you pick up one of your friends from Elevate Care for church, when you clean out the coffee maker uh, for in the church office, when you share the hope of Christ with a neighbor uh, after they have lost a loved one, when you hold our precious babies in the nursery during the worship service, as some of you are downstairs right now. Maybe you've heard us at some point give each other this two-word reminder. We say to each other, no spectators, right? That's just a way of reminding each other uh, that we're all in the game. That's Ephesians 4, right? A few of us in ministry are paid to free up more of our time and energy to equip the rest of us for ministry, but we are all in ministry. Those who aren't paid are no less called to ministry than someone like myself is. What we're about to see is that the sending out of ordinary believers like us for ministry goes all the way back to Jesus. We have in the Gospels a few stories of Jesus quite literally sending out his followers, and commissioning them for ministry. So in Luke chapter 9, the chapter before the one we're about to look at, Jesus sent his 12 closest followers, his disciples, apostles. Apostles actually means sent ones. Now in Luke 10, we're going to see him send a larger group of his followers, not just 12, but 72 this time. Jesus has work for them to do, ministry work. So here's how it's going to work today. We're going to look at this passage. It's going to break down in three parts. Instructions, report, in warning. So first we're going to see how Jesus describes the work that he's calling them to do. That's the instructions. Then we're going to see how the 72 experience the work. That's their report. And then we're going to see how Jesus puts the work into its proper place. That's the warning. Instructions, report, warning. Let's start with the instructions. Verses 1 through 16. Uh, let's read those. Uh, follow along with me as I read. And I'll stop at a couple points to comment. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. You may have a note there that says, could be 70. Some manuscripts say 70. Uh, we're not sure quite which exactly it was, uh, which manuscripts were original, but uh, it's, uh, there's not a the major theological difference one way or the other. He appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. It's a pattern of team ministry which is the most dominant pattern we see throughout the New Testament. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. 
Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So as Jesus is talking here to them about the rejection they might experience, it reminds them of a rejection he has already experienced in Galilee. So he goes on in verse 13 and says, Woe to you, Chorazin, town in Galilee. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. There's a reason that these idols, these sorts of idols that we've seen in these last few weeks, uh, Jesus confronting are things like ministry, wealth, family. They're things that are really great things that have the ability to bring us a lot of joy, right? Like, let's be honest. Not many of us are tempted to idolize math homework, right? Or the balancing of checkbooks or the cleaning of dentures. Things that can't bring much joy don't call very loudly for our worship. Conversely, the more power something has to bring us joy, the more potential it has to become an idol. As such, some of you have found that ministry is actually quite easy to idolize. Especially once we've read passages like this one and realized the incredible extent of what's possible in ministry, what we've been called and empowered to, it can feel like, man, this is exactly what I was made for. I wish we could expound all 16 verses here that we just read, but let me just briefly make six pairs of observations, kind of one after another, uh, about ministry from these verses that apply to all of us here today, I think. First, we don't need a high level of training, but we do need to know Jesus. We don't need a high level of training. But we do need to know Jesus. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that even Jesus' 12 closest followers, the ones who are with him all the time, they don't get it at this point in Luke 10. They are putting their feet in their mouths every other chapter here. And that's the 12. That's his closest guys, right? The 72 that we're seeing sent out here, they almost certainly had spent less time with Jesus than the 12 had. And so they were therefore in all likelihood even less ministry ready at this point than the 12 were. Yet, Jesus says, 72, you're ready. You're ready for ministry. And he sends them out. Why? Is it because they have all the answers? Not at all. They unequivocally don't. They're ready because Jesus' one baseline qualification for ministry happens to be the one that they possess, namely, a relationship with him. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but if you know Jesus, you are ready for some kind of ministry. If you're presently sitting out from participation in his mission, come off the sideline. Tell one of us, hey, I'm ready to get in the game. How can I serve? Second, speaking of that mission, we must not ignore physical needs, but proclamation is essential. We must not ignore physical needs, but proclamation is essential. This has been a big debate at times in the history of Christianity. Is the mission of the church simply to proclaim the gospel, or is it to minister to tangible needs, or is it both? 
We see here in this passage one data point that points to, uh, fits into a pattern that we see emerging throughout Scripture, namely that both physical and spiritual needs are important for the church to address, but they're not equally important for the church to address. See what I mean here in our text, verse 9? On the one hand, Jesus isn't indifferent to physical needs. He says, verse 9, heal the sick, right? That's the first thing he tells them to do. But on the other hand, notice, a pair of disciples wouldn't have completed their mission as laid out by Jesus here if they healed the sick in one home and then moved on to the next sick person's home, right? That wouldn't have been a fulfillment of the mission. They were called to heal the sick and verbally proclaim the kingdom. Verse 9, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Here's the reality, friends. Tangible needs are important. But if all we do is meet tangible needs, you and I, we are casket decorators. We're just providing people with more comfortable transportation on their journey to hell. So that's why we refer sometimes to that John Piper quote, all suffering matters, especially eternal suffering. While we're reflecting on the importance of proclaiming the good news, uh, Third point, we can't manufacture readiness to receive the good news, but those who are ready to receive the good news, they still need to hear it. Think about that for a second. We can't manufacture readiness to receive the good news. We can't make someone ready. But those who are ready to receive the good news, they still need to hear it. Let's think through the two sides of that coin for a moment. First, that we can't manufacture readiness. I say that because of how Jesus talks here in verse 6 about these sons of peace. Do you see that? Look at that again, verse 6. If a son of peace is there, he talks about a son of peace. Is there any suggestion in this passage that the 72 are going to be able to turn someone who isn't a son of peace into a son of peace? Take a look. You see anything along those lines? Doesn't seem like it. It kind of seems like Jesus is saying that either a particular person is a son, daughter of peace, or in which case they'll receive the message and the blessing will remain on them, or they're not a son, daughter of peace. In which case, they'll reject the message and the blessing that was spoken over them won't hold true for them. It'll return. So one exciting implication of this, actually, is that you and I, we don't have to craft clever words to try to change people's hearts. Because the heart-changing thing is something that God has already done. He's already prepared a bunch of sons of peace out there, sons and daughters of peace that are out there in our communities right now. People who are ripe, so to speak. Right? They're ready to hear and respond to the good news. It's like you said back in verse 2, the harvest is plentiful. But that's the thing. Somebody still has to collect the harvest right? by sharing the good news. And Luke 10 is one of the times that Jesus says there aren't even enough workers right now to do the work of collecting that needs to be done. So he, asks, he tells them, pray, please pray that God will raise up workers for the harvest so that these people who are ready to receive the good news and, and turn to God can hear it. We can't manufacture readiness to receive the good news, but those who are ready to receive the good news still need to hear what a privilege it is that we get to bring it to them. Fourth, now let's talk about our posture when we do bring the good news to people. We go as lambs, but we aren't passive. We go as lambs, but we aren't passive. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, Jesus says in verse 3. It's worth pondering in 2021 as lamb-like qualities aren't exactly in vogue. 
Jesus providing lambs as the paradigm now, it doesn't mean that the 72 are supposed to be passive. This mission is going to require boldness. Look at the stern warning, for example, that these lambs are required to issue in verses 10 and 11. If, if the people don't receive you, here's what Jesus says to do. Go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. But by calling them lambs in the midst of wolves, Jesus is clarifying that he isn't sending them out to gain influence in the way that the wolves of the world gain influence. Name-calling, use of force, bullying, riling up mobs for the cause. Instead, he's sending them out with very little in the way of worldly power to present the message of the kingdom, all the while knowing that they're often going to be rejected for it. We go as lambs but we aren't passive. Number five, we don't minister for selfish gain, but we also aren't ascetics. He warns twice in verse seven, stay in the same house. Don't move from house to house. In other words, don't be jumping from house to house to find a more comfortable bed or a higher quality food than the first person is providing for you. At the same time though, don't deprive yourselves. Verse seven again, eat and drink what they provide. The laborer, even the one laboring in spiritual things deserves his wages. So we don't minister for selfish gain, but we also aren't ascetics. Finally, number six, we aren't Jesus, but we do carry the authority of Jesus. We aren't Jesus, but we do carry the authority of Jesus. Based on reports, it seems that some of the high-profile Christian ministers who have fallen in recent months may have lost the first half of this, the memory that actually we aren't Jesus You hear them say things like, I didn't think I could be honest about my struggles because think about how damaging it would be to all the people who look up to me if they knew my life behind closed doors. It's almost like they got to thinking that the future of God's kingdom rested on their shoulders. Like the ball boy who thought the point of the basketball game was his wiping the floor under the hoop. Friends, you and I are sent by Jesus, but we aren't Jesus. And as soon as we start envisioning ourselves, assuming his role in the story, ministry has done something dangerous to our hearts. Still, though, even though we aren't Jesus, look at the shockingly close identification Jesus makes between our ministry and himself. You see that verse 16? The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Did you catch that? You know what that means? If you and I are truly proclaiming the message of the kingdom, then, despite all our flaws, despite the gaps in my understanding and yours, when we speak, it's actually Christ speaking to people. Such that whether they accept or reject us is correlated here one-to-one with whether they accept or reject Christ, which is correlated one-to-one with their acceptance or rejection of God the Father. We aren't Jesus, but we do carry the authority of Jesus himself. When we look back at those six points, and we reflect on the fact that the ministry that the 72 were called to is in many ways the same sort of ministry that we've been called to. I don't know if you're taking notes, but if you look back at those, you see that it's in many ways the same sort of ministry that you and I are called to. We can understand then why doing this sort of ministry might be so tempting to idolize. There's potential here to share in some of the most exhilarating experiences available this side of heaven. 
It's incredible joy as a pastor to serve in a church where most of you are engaged in this sort of ministry. And I want you to know this morning that your pastors and elders see you and that God sees you. So I want to say God sees you, prayer warrior, who is lifting up our services in prayer, pleading with God to soften hearts and make people receptive to the gospel. God sees that. God sees you, tech volunteer, who can't sit with your friends or family on Sunday morning because you're serving to make it possible for, for example, for parents staying at home this morning with sick kids to hear and see the word of God clearly this morning. Thank you. God sees. God sees you, life group leader, who is working to counter the bullying leadership tendencies of our day with gentle, quietly faithful shepherding. God sees that. God sees you, teenager, who's praying for the courage to tell her friends at school that she's a Christian, God sees. This ministry that we've been called to isn't easy, but it may just be that big, audacious purpose that our hearts were hardwired to crave. So after verse 16, the 72 that Jesus sends out, they have to be nervous, right? Have to imagine that they were. But they step out in faith and they do what Jesus told them to do. Let's see what they come back and report afterwards. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You know when you're really nervous for something, but then it goes way better than you expected? I remember my first swim meet as a kid. I was nervous, backstroke, uh, just a single time down the length of the pool, I think. So the gun goes off, and I'm swimming as hard as I can. I, and I, I just know I'm giving everything I got. I'm going faster than I've ever gone before. And so when I touch the wall... I snap my head around to look to my left and right, and my heart about jumps out of my chest because there is nobody there to my left or right touching the wall. So, you know, I'm a confident kid, but even so, winning the race wasn't even something that was even like, it was a way better outcome than I could have dreamed. So upon touching the wall and seeing nobody around, my eyes were scanning for my parents. And I asked, I, I found my dad and I yelled, Dad, did I win? I couldn't believe it. That's where the analogy that I'm making here starts to break down because, as it turns out, I didn't win. Uh, what actually happened, I was so far in last place that everyone else had already gotten out of the pool. <laughs> but for the 72 in our story, the mission that they were likely nervous for really does actually go even better than they could have expected. They come back bursting with excitement. They just can't believe it. Jesus, you told us we'd be able to heal the sick. You hinted that some people would receive our message, but even the demons are subject to us in your name. Must have felt a little like Peter Parker in the comic books or movies when he realizes it for the first time. Wait, I've got super strength. Wait, I can walk on walls. Wait, I, I have a sixth sense now. They're overwhelmed with excitement here about the power that's now theirs. And despite the corrective that Jesus is about to provide, I actually don't think we want to disparage this joy that they experience in this moment. Like, aren't we called in Philippians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 to rejoice always? If I'm supposed to find a way to rejoice, even when my kid poops in the tub for the third night in a row, how much more appropriate is it for the disciples to rejoice when they've seen God's kingdom supernaturally breaking into their lived experience? Or think about it this way. Jesus tells his disciples a few chapters later, Luke 15, that the angels celebrate when a sinner returns to God. So when you and I share the good news of the kingdom with someone and they turn to God, are we less entitled to celebrate than the angels are? No, on one level, it's good that the disciples are joyful here. 
And maybe a memory is coming to you of a time when you had the great joy of seeing God use you in a mighty way to beat back the forces of evil, of the devil, maybe even to bring someone into God's kingdom. For me, one memory in particular stands out as particularly notable. Um, when I was a high school history teacher, there was a young Hindu student in my class. We'll call him Neil. He was a great kid. He'd stay after class to ask me questions about life. And one day, I think God gave me this idea. To, I just decided I was going to invite Neil to come on our church's upcoming youth retreat. Sarah was the youth director at our church at the time. I was a volunteer leader in the youth groups. And to my surprise, Neil's parents let him go. Told him he, told him he could. So I got everybody I knew to pray for Neil leading up to this weekend. I uh, scrapped my whole teaching plan for the retreat, rewrote all the talks to be things that I thought Neil needed to hear. And sure enough, on the last night of the trip, I taught on the exclusivity of Jesus when Jesus talks about how he's the only way to God. And I asked if anyone wanted to put their faith in Christ. Neil broke down. He started crying in front of everybody and said he wanted to give his life to Jesus. He wanted all his friends in Nepal to know about this. The whole youth group gathered around him, laid hands on him. He prayed to receive Christ. And that night, after everyone went to bed, I walked about 100 yards out into the woods where we were staying. And I just started yelling at the top of my lungs, yes! That's all I knew how to do. It's all I could do. That was a top three closest to God moment my whole life. And I have to believe that was just a little taste of what the 72 were feeling in Luke 10. When they came back, like, Jesus, we, we know you told us we'd have power, but we didn't know it'd be like this. Here's the thing, though. We get back home from the youth retreat. I'm spending time with Neil each day, pouring into him, discussing the Bible with him. It's all great. But then when I tell him, okay, hey, let's talk about how you're going to tell your family. He starts drifting away from me. I can tell he's kind of avoiding me now in the coming days until eventually one day he works up the courage to tell me, hey, Mr. Higgins, I can't, I can't be a Christian. My parents will disown me. I can't do it. And I pleaded with him, but he walked away from the Christian faith. And as far as I know, 10 years later, he hasn't come back. That rocked me. I was devastated first and foremost for Neil but I was also so confused about what this meant for my relationship with God, honestly. Specifically, that moment in the woods when I thought I was so close to God and was so sensing his presence, smiling on me after he displayed his power through my willingness to be used in ministry. Was that experience even real? What is real? I experienced a long period of despair after that. And in hindsight, I think I needed this warning from Jesus that the 72 get in verses 18 through 20. Let's look at the warning. And I say warning, but note how the warning doesn't actually start with a correction, but with an affirmation of sorts. Let's take a look at it, starting in verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. But here's where the idol comes in. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So at first, 
verse 18. Jesus responds to the report like, yes, I know, I saw Satan fall. And possibly speaking literally about some concrete moment, more likely speaking figuratively about the supernatural binding of Satan that was taking place as they were doing their ministry. Then Jesus maybe even ramps up their excitement even more when he's like, hey, you're going to see even crazier things than this, than what you saw on that little mission trip. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you, verse 19. In other words, sure, Peter Parker, you're excited because you can walk on walls and lift up cars, but let me show you your web slingers, right? So far, so encouraging. But that's when the gentle course correction comes. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's here in verse 20 that Jesus zeroes in on ministry as a potential idol. Bears repeating for the sake of clarity, I don't think this is some kind of blanket call to respond with emotionless stoicism when God grants an incredible display of power over demons or we have any sort of other ministry success. If, that, if it were that, why would angels celebrate? Why is the father in the prodigal son story throw a party and say this is time to rejoice? Here's what I think Jesus is saying. As much as we may rightly rejoice in ministry success, there's something much more important than ministry that ought to provide a much more potent fountain of joy. The ultimate source of our joy isn't actually our power, but our position. The ultimate source of our joy isn't actually the ministry we do, but rather the status that we hold. It's all about what's ultimate. And in that way, ministry is like so many other idols, a good thing that becomes sinful when we make it an ultimate thing. So let's look at our diagnostic that we keep returning to week after week. These questions are from Paul Tripp to help us discern whether we've made one of these good things, in this case ministry, into an idol. Here's what he asks us. Am I willing to sin to attain ministry success? This is one of our enemy's favorite ways to get us because it's so easy to convince ourselves that we're doing a good thing by bending the rules for the sake of ministry. The end justifies the means. I'm doing the Lord's work by being like the people that I'm ministering to or by doing this or that that'll help me be more effective in ministry. Second, am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose my ministry? Like if I tell this person the truth, I know they'll probably cut me out and I'll lose the influence that I have in their life. I can't lose my ministry to them. It's too important to God's kingdom purposes. So I'm going to hold off on telling them the truth right now. Third, do I turn to ministry as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? Like maybe I get lots of pats on the back for my ministry as a deacon in the church or as a life group leader. So that then becomes the little happy place where I go in my mind, where I escape when I want to get away from the fact that my family is a train wreck right now, or when I want to get away from the fact that work is so stressful. See how easy it is for the enemy to try to steer a person who's gifted for ministry toward idolatry of ministry? When I reflect back on my journey with Neil, the young man from my class, here's what I've concluded. What was wrong wasn't that I felt God's pleasure over me the night that Neil broke down in tears and prayed to receive Christ. That wasn't wrong. What was wrong was that I didn't feel God's pleasure over me on the day that Neil walked away from God. In other words, because I was ultimately seeking joy, not in my position, but in my power, then when that power was exposed as an illusion, my joy deteriorated with it. 
I'd idolized ministry such that I couldn't sense God's pleasure over me apart from ministry success. And now that I'm in full-time vocational ministry, it's even more important than ever that I battle to seek my joy, my identity, and the fact that I'll one day watch my father turn the pages in his book until he comes to my name. And he shows it to me there written on that page. And it was written there before I had ever had a chance to do a single good thing for him. Here's our big idea for today. Though we've been sent out with great power for ministry, may our highest joy always be in our position. Though we've been sent out with great power for ministry, may our highest joy always be in our position, our names written in heaven. It's the most difficult to diagnose that ministry has become an idol for us when we're experiencing ministry success, isn't it? Those moments of success in ministry always come with a rush of endorphins, at least they often do. It's hard to sort through the degree to which those endorphins were produced by our enjoyment of relationship with God and to what degree those endorphins were produced because we just got a hit of the ministry drug that we're addicted to. It's hard to sort through whether we've become the ball boys, living as if our cleaning of the floor is the point of the game. Sometimes we don't find out that ministry is an idol until ministry, or at least ministry success, is taken away. I'll close with this story that Dia Carson relates about Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most well-known and faithful preachers of the 20th century. Lloyd-Jones was very old, very sick, nearing death. Someone came to visit him and asked him, how are you coping in these last months of your life? You used to preach to tens of thousands, crowded arenas. Now you can barely get out of bed for an hour before you're too tired. Lloyd-Jones' response, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I am perfectly content. Friends, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you and I, we've been assigned a ministry. And whatever ministries you and I have been assigned, may we hold them in such a way May our identities be so firmly grounded in the presence of our names in God's book that we would be perfectly content, even if those ministries were taken away. If you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you were made for more, friend, than the life that you're experiencing right now. It may seem crazy, the suggestion that God could want to use you, but once you get into this book, you're going to find that he has used murderers and cheaters and liars to turn the world upside down. And you can be assured that your name is written in his book alongside theirs if you'll turn from your sin and place your trust in him, believing that when he willingly died on that cross, he did so to take the punishment that you deserved for your sin, thereby purchasing a place for your name in his heavenly book. You can take hold of that gift of salvation even today if you call on him and entrust yourself to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for calling us and equipping us and gifting us for ministry, for giving us those moments in which we feel your pleasure as we get to participate in the work of your kingdom. But Lord, even more than that, we thank you this morning that you saved us, that our names, if we belong to you, are written in your book, that they were written there before we ever did a good thing for you, 
that they will continue to be written there even after we sin today, knowingly or unknowingly. We thank you, Lord, for our place in your family, purchased not by our good deeds, not by our fruitful ministry, but rather by the work of your son Jesus on the cross. Help us to cling to that. Help us to treasure it above all this week, even above those great moments of ministry that you give to us. In Jesus' name, amen.